Um, as, as we begin, I have to apologize for my voice a little bit. I'm on the tail end of a cold here, but I blame it all on the stressful, stressful week I had as Pastor Ben was gone. Um, it's actually an exciting week because on Thursday night, we kind of opened up our doors to the community, and there's a, a, this piano teacher who wanted to have her recital here, and so um, she, she paid us a small nominal amount, and, and so we, we let them um, you know, use, use the, the facility. And a great crowd, great, great, great group of people. Um, Brad and uh, Jackie Brecky helped to get the facility all set up, which means you know we had to have a piano in here. So we pulled the big black piano, rolled it out here. We they pulled the big big black piano out here and got it all situated. And it was still early in the day, but we noticed that we had this this big problem uh, with those pianos and the nicer ones. They they have the lock on them, and somehow the piano got locked. You know, where you can't lift it up, you can't get to the keys. So we have this beautiful black piano, but we can't play it at all. And so Jackie, she, she goes through the entire building, every nook, every cranny, every single cupboard, everything. We can't find that key. It's missing. There's no way we're going to find it. And we have a recital coming up in a few hours. And so, okay, so what does a guy do? A guy says, I see problem. I fix problem. <laughs> and then so I, I, I start to, you know, I've seen this on TV. It's not that hard to pick a lock. And so yeah, I do. Here's what you always see on TV. You see, um, they always have two things here. Um, one of the things is this here. I got some pictures for you. So this was version 1.0 of what I was trying to do last week. So you, you always have two things. You put the first thing in, then you put the other thing in, and you twist it, right? So this is going to be easy. Uh, I, I realized that I needed like a tooth. On, on whatever I was putting in there, so that's the straight screwdriver wouldn't work. And so, well, what do you do? Paper clips, right? You can bend a paper clip. Um, but before that, I was like, well, maybe, maybe I'll try some other things. So version 2.0 is actually just a nail. I had to take down. I mean, this is bad. I took down the cross in my in my office, and I used the nail that was holding it up. <laughs> and and I, I sort of bent it around, but you know, it's just too clumsy. I couldn't quite get in there, so I tried a different thing. It was too thick. And then version 2.2. Do you see what that is? An Allen key, an Allen wrench, and that, that one was just too big. I couldn't actually fit in the slot. So I went on and, okay, paper clips, here's a good idea. <laughs> no, the paper clips that we have in our office are just horribly thin. And while they're easy to form, it didn't end up well for paper clip number one. And so what I found in our office then was, were these bigger clips. I mean, I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is exactly what I need. This is totally what I can use to, to get open. And so I went to versions 3.1, 3.2. All the way through 3.5, ending in catastrophic failure. And it's at this point that Jackie Brecky, you know, she's just so sweet. She's like, Matt, sh should we look up some locksmiths maybe? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll probably get it by the time he gets here. But yeah, let's go ahead and go ahead and call a locksmith. And so long story short, the locksmith comes in here and he's able to open it. But I'll, I'll never forget the first thing he said. He, he walked in. He's, you know, the piano's right here. And he looks at the piano. He looks in that keyhole. And he's like, I don't know if I have the right key for this. This is just so weird. I'm like, I know, <laughs> but I loosened it for you. <laughs> All right, so this week we're getting into week two of our series called Shadows. And uh, what we're doing in this series, oh, that'll serve a point in a minute, by the way. Uh, what we're doing in this series is we're, we're taking a look at something Jesus said very specifically after his death and resurrection. Uh, he's, he's talking to some disciples who, who are sad that he died, and he's like, this had to happen. And it, it says very specifically in Luke 24, starting with Moses, the first few books of the Bible, first five books of the Bible, starting with Moses and all the way through the prophets, through, through the entire Old Testament, Jesus showed them why he had to suffer and die. Or in, in New Testament terms, we look at the Old Testament, it's, it's a bunch of shadows. 
giving us a little glimpse about who Jesus is and why he had to suffer and die. And, and so it's, it's amazing to see how Jesus does this uh, for these disciples, and that's what this whole series is about, looking at these shadows to tell us a little bit more about the purpose of why he suffered and why he died. Um, if you were here last week, you heard our first message on this series entitled Victim. Um, and, and if you remember, a victim, according to the Latin word that it comes from, simply means an animal. And a victim is an animal designated for a sacrifice. And we saw that shadow in Abraham and his son Isaac. And we see the ultimate reality in Christ as becoming a victim for us. And that was week one. If you missed it, we have all of our series, all of our, our um, sermons online in audio form. You can even see the sermon notes. It's BethlehemLakeville.org. And you can see that on your inside flap of the first cover also. Uh, so that was last week, looking at the victim. And this week, we're taking it another step forward to look at this other issue of, of, of who Jesus is. And the word that we're going to look at today is remedy. Here's the thing about any religion out there. Okay, now we're finally getting back to the whole piano thing. Any religion out there identifies a problem. They all identify the, pro- they all identify the thing you need to unlock. And once any religion, every religion, once they identify their problem, what do they do then? They give you the solution. They give you the key. So any religion, if you're ever in a religious discussion with someone and you just can't you know, see eye to eye, you just don't get it, just back up and say, hey, what's the problem? And once they tell you the problem, what's the solution? And that's how you get to the heart and core of any religion out there. And yet all, their, all of them are very different. Uh, but our first key point here, any religion out there defines a problem and then it offers a remedy or a solution for it. Some religions, it's kind of like breaking into a piano. Okay, pretty easy, pretty basic stuff. Other religions, it's like breaking into Fort Knox. But the goal for today, what we want to do is we really want to identify what Jesus says. The Jesus who suffered and died and then came back to life. What does he look at in you and what does he see as the problem? And then what does he do about a solution? All right, I just lost half of you, three-fourths of you because you're like, okay, I've been a Christian for a while. I know what the problem is. I know Jesus is the remedy. I know he's the solution for it. But, but here's what we're going to see by the end of this. As we look at this shadow that we're going to see in Numbers 21, what God does is he's, he's going to open up something that I think might be locked in your life right now. And in a very unique way, God uses a picture, a shadow, to help us see something that's missing in life right now. And we're going to see what that is and what the remedy is, what the solution is here towards the end. Uh, but it's going to be um, really neat to, to see how he does that. It's going to be in Numbers chapter 21. You can see a portion of that in your, in your service folder. But one really important thing is I have to sort of explain what got us to this point in Numbers chapter 21. And you're totally going to empathize with these people once, once you hear them, once you hear what's going on. In Numbers 21, they, the, the Israelites, the, the children of Abraham, they have been traveling, wandering around for nearly the entire 40 years now. About 40 years they've been wandering around the wilderness. And what happens in Numbers 20 is really important. Uh, there's a tragedy. If you know who, do you know who Aaron is? Aaron was the brother of Moses. And Aaron was kind of like his wingman. You know, Moses... 40 years earlier, he's like, God, I can't do this. Don't send me in there. And God's like, I'll give you Aaron. Okay, Aaron, he'll talk for you. He'll do most of the work for you. And so Aaron and Moses, they were this team. They were the leaders of Israel. 
And in, 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 in Numbers 20, they come to this place called Mount Hor, which I'll show you on a map in a second. And it's there that God said to Aaron, you're too old. Uh, you're going to die. And this will be your burial spot. So they're right there on Mount Hor. Aaron died, and they buried him there. That's his tomb, Mount Hor. And, and you, you might think, okay, this could be an emotional time for all these people, you know, losing one of their key leaders, you know, all that history gone. Actually, it, it tells us this was a very emotional time. The people mourned for Aaron for 30 days. 30-day funeral for him, right there at Mount Hor, you know, where he was buried. And then they get distracted for a minute. There's this, um, this tribe leader from the, from the south. They, they steal some of the Israelites, and so the Israelites, is kind of the typical Old, Old Testament story. They go out and they just kill everything, and, and they get their people back. Um, and then they come back to Mount Hor, and it's like, okay, it's time to move on. But realize this. The people have been traveling for 40 years. The people just lost their key leader, and now they're about to leave the place where he was buried. And Numbers 21 starts off with this in verse 4. Uh, the Israelites, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. I'll show that on a map in just a second. But the people grew impatient on the way. And, and you parents, you know what impatience is, or we all know because we were kids at one time. You know what impatience looks like. The, the the Hebrew idiom used here is actually a lot deeper than just, um, getting antsy, getting impatient. The, the, the word is, the soul of the people grew short. The soul of the people grew short. Or maybe an idiom we would use in English is, their will was being broken. They were losing their fight. Losing their desire to live. Their soul was growing short. And here's one big reason why. Um, they go around Edom. Here's kind of a rough drawing of what it might have looked like. Um, so you see the arrow on the left there pointing this way. Uh, that's maybe where the area of Mount Hor was. Not too far from where they wanted to be. They had to get to the top right of the map there. Um, Moab and north of it. Now that's where they would make their entry into finally their home. The promised land. But you see the route that they took, and there's a specific reason for this. You see, Edom, God had told them, you're not going to have a square inch of land in Edom. You're not going to be able to go through there. And in fact, a couple chapters ago, you know, the, the whole Edomite army basically stood on the border of their land, and they, they said to Israel, you're not going to step foot in our land. And so Israel backed off. And now here's the last leg of the journey. And to get to where they need to be, they need to take this huge, huge detour. And it says that along the way, the soul of the people grew short. And you can probably relate to this. You know, you've been on vacation all week. You've driven thousands of miles, and you're finally at your exit to get off and go home. And there's this massive construction. You've got to take a 50-mile detour. And you're just like, oh, so close. Can we just leave the car here and get out and run home? You know, it's so close. And yet, you have to go around so far. The soul of the people was growing short. What happens when, when your soul grows short like that? What happens when you lose your fight? Here's what they did. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. We detest this miserable food. 
They're in meltdown mode. And if you have a small kid, you know what meltdown mode is. There's no rational thought going on, is there? It's like, you just got to wait till this puppy is done doing whatever they're doing. There's, there's no reason to try to speak any logic to someone who's in meltdown mode. They're not making any sense right here. It's gibberish. They have food. They, ha they have water. They have miraculous food every morning. They've had miraculous water from various places. They have this stuff. Maybe their last comment is just the more uh, specific thing. They say, we detest this nasty, despicable food. And maybe some, some say it wasn't even just the food that, that caused this whole thing. They say maybe it's just this small thing that was the last straw. We detest it. And so they spoke against God and against Moses. Uh, well, we'll see what, what uh, God does here in response to this. Verse 6. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Wow, God overreacted, didn't he? My kids have complained about supper and stuff. I didn't send scorpions or snakes to punish them. There's something important to remember about the way God dealed with these people, and this is you know, supported whenever you look at their story in the Old Testament. God viewed them not just as a bunch of individuals loosely grouped together. He, he viewed the Israelites as one body, one group, one person. And never does he destroy it. Never does he get rid of it. Uh, but at times, like you have right here, at times he does permit it, to suffer, to get its attention. And here, here's a really key point as, as we uh, look through this story and we start to find some applications for us. Here's one key point. You know, sometimes God gets your attention in one way or another. Uh, sometimes it's just your conscience that is, there's something wrong here. There's a problem here. Uh, sometimes it's the voice of a good, faithful friend. Sometimes it's something that you're reading in his word and it, it strikes you and, there's different ways God gets your attention, but um, uh, the, thing, the good thing is, he does it. Key point number two here. God brought attention to the problem. He continues to bring attention to the problem. And, and we're going to define the problem based on what happens next. If, if you were these people, you know, you had all sorts of excuses to bring up. Oh, yeah, we complain about the food. God's, God's sending these venomous snakes. But God, we were just a little emotional. You understand. Uh, we were, you know, we were just getting tired from this long trip. You know, we, just a, a phase we went through. Just a little mistake. God, we're just so sad that we lost Aaron. You can understand, right? I mean, we weren't thinking right. We weren't thinking clearly. Obviously, we, we love the food. Food's great, thanks. You know, they could have done all sorts of things when God, said, God got their attention and, and said, hey, something's wrong. Um, here's the thing that was really wrong. They weren't just getting angry at their meal. They were rejecting their God. And Jesus made this point very clearly in, in John chapter 6. He's saying, you know that bread that they got every day? That wasn't just bread, that was me. And by rejecting their bread, they rejected the God who gave it to them. And the people began to realize this. They, this wasn't just a little mistake or an oversight. This was something deeper, and this is something that we have to come to grips with also. The people came to Moses, verse 7, and they said, we sinned. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord 
and against you. Listen, we, we sin. And I know this is a, a topic that uh, Ben dove into maybe a year ago or, or so before I got here. You know, this, this whole concept of how we use the word sin in our lives today. We don't use the word sin outside of church. If your boss calls you into his office with a bunch of red things circled on something that you had done, he doesn't say, you sinned here and you sinned here and you sinned here. Please, please, you know, make some uh, corrections for me. Uh, you don't use the word sin. If the police officer pulls you over, he doesn't say, I clocked you going sin. Um, so here's your citation, your sin citation. If you're in a courtroom, the judge doesn't say you're accused of first degree sin. Okay, we, we don't really hear those, the word sin outside of, of church. There is a different word that we love to use. Mistake. It's, it's so hard to say, I'm a sinner or I sin, but it's really easy to say, I made a mistake. In fact, you, you look at politicians who just got caught doing something, they stand in, behind their podium, I made a mistake. You're thinking, for the last four years you've been making mistakes? <laughs> Can you make a mistake and do it on purpose? You know, it's, how do we define the term mistake? Here's the thing about a mistake. A mistake means, if I made a mistake, it means I didn't have all the information. A mistake means, it refers to something that you do for, for a math assignment. A mistake is something you can fix. A sin is something that you can't fix. A sin is something that is out of your hands altogether. And a sin means that you're condemned. There, there's this, you know, tendency to say, I made a mistake. You know, it's a little thing, I just made a mistake. But in reality, the thing that you all have, you all have, <laughs> use my oaky accent there, you all have to understand it's not just a matter of us making mistakes because we make mistakes a lot. It's a matter of us being sinners. Sin. Sin. The people said to Moses, we sinned. We did it on purpose. There was no mistake. There's no, no reason we should have done it. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. And the people re realize what happens. When you tell someone you're guilty... You deserve to be condemned. <clears throat> and so they, they say to Moses, please, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So, so Moses prayed for the people. And here's why we're so hesitant to say the word sin or to say I did something wrong. It's because we're expecting that person to condemn. But here's how God responded. Maybe this is a little bit un unusual. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, all right, make a snake. Put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. But we sinned. <laughs> uh, we sinned. What, 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 what is this snake going to do? And put yourself in Moses' shoes. You know, the people, they just lost their, their beloved Aaron. They've been wandering for 40 years. Now there's snakes in the camp. Uh, Moses, what are we going to do? We're going to build a snake. We're going to put it on a pole. And you're going to look at it. And you've got to think, that sounds kind of... Foolish, doesn't it? The remedy God is suggesting sounds foolish until you actually do it. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, here's what happened. When anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, 
he lived. I have no idea how it worked. And here's where my analytical mind starts to wonder, what if people didn't have that good of vision? What if, you know, what if they had like negative five in each eye or negative ten, whatever? You know, what if they couldn't really see clearly? How close did you have to be to the snake in order to be healed by it? Or what was it about this snake that made it so special? And maybe those are not good questions to ask because here's the, the only truth that you need to know. How did it heal them? God put his power behind it. God told Moses, when people look at this, they will be healed. They will not die. They will live. And that's what made this bronze snake so powerful and so effective. I mean, you can make all sorts of applications. You know, God says, this water and baptism, I'm going to put my power behind it. And it's not just going to wash your body clean. It's going to wash your inside. It's going to wash your, your heart. It's going to make you holy because it connects you to Christ. And this, this bread, this wine, this is Christ's body and blood given for your forgiveness. How can that be? I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm just going to say God says it is. He puts his power behind it. And, and the, the cool thing about this is when God gives the remedy, he gives it to the right people. This bronze snake didn't miraculously cure and heal everybody all over the world. This was just for the people who could see it. Just for the people who looked at it. And, and as, as we start to look at this a little bit deeper, what we're going to see next, we're going to turn to John chapter 3 in a second. What we're going to see is God is very deliberate about the, the appropriateness of the remedy, but also the scope to which he provides it, the, the, the people to which he provides it. Uh, key point number three here, God provided the right remedy with the right scope, with the right audience, with the right people in mind. He gave the right thing at the right time for the right people. And as, as we start to apply this and see, as, um, as this story tells us a little shadow about Christ, there's some important questions that begin to come up. So you're saying Jesus is kind of like a bronze snake. Uh, we have to look at him, and we'll be healed of something. You know, we never would have seen any symbolic nature behind this story of the bronze snake, unless, except if Jesus had not explained it for us. Uh, he, was, he was meeting with this guy named Nicodemus, who was this the Pharisee, a very smart guy. And, and, and Nicodemus was just wondering, who are you? What's your true nature, Jesus? What, where did you, what did you come for? What's your future like? What's your vision? And Jesus answered him in part by saying this in uh, John chapter 3, verse 14. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake, lifted up the remedy, in the desert. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus saying, so I am the remedy for you. And, and notice the scope here too. Uh, next slide. Uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, just for the people in the desert, just for the people who could see it, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone, not just people in Jerusalem who could see him on the cross, but everyone, in the world. The remedy is for everyone. So that everyone who believes in him, not just looks at him, not just says, oh, that's nice, but everyone who believes that he truly is the remedy, they will have eternal life. Or as it says elsewhere in the Bible, they will not die, but live. 
And then the familiar phrase that or passage that Jesus uses to summarize all this up, John 3, 16. Let's read this one together. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And, and it's, it's, it's right here. You might say it's right in plain sight that you see the story of the bronze snake un- unlocked, opened up. Jesus is the ultimate remedy for sin. Not for snake bites, but for sin. This thing that condemns us, he's the remedy. He takes the sin away so that there is no consequence of death for you. And that's the the straight out theological doctrinal truth that you walk away with today. Jesus is the remedy that takes away the sin of the world. And as 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 we maybe struggle, okay, to to apply that, just more not just on a theological level, but on a personal level. How does this shape my life today? Maybe some of you wrestle with something at this point, maybe like I do. You say to yourself, okay. Fine, great. You have this guy who takes away your sin. What about all the horrible things that I have in my life from before? What about all my scars I carry with me? Uh, Maybe the scars are things that I did. You, You wish you could go back to that day and do things differently. That's a scar. And every time you remember that scar, you think of that scar, it's just this, oh, guilt, shame, remorse. Your scar could be something that somebody else did to you. And you think back to that day that it happened, and you're thinking, how could I forgive? How could I find peace in that? How could Jesus possibly be a remedy for the scars that I cannot get rid of? And here's one last thing to think about with the uh, Israelites and their bronze snake. God said that whenever anyone bitten looked at that snake, he lived. Not that whenever he looked at the snake, the snake bite miraculously just disappeared and went away. But it seems like even as, as they looked at that snake, they could still feel that poison, that venom going through them, and they could still feel its effects. And especially after the fact, it's, they could still look at their arm or their hand or their feet. They could see those two puncture wounds, evidence of what they had suffered. But from that day on, whenever they looked at those scars, they didn't look at them as, as uh, oh, God hates me, or, oh, God is, is angry at me, or I need to do something for God. The scars would be a lasting remembrance of how God provided the remedy. And if God provided the remedy, that means the remedy is not me. God provided it. And, and so um, as, as we uh, finish up here, a uh, last to fill in, let the scars testify that God's remedy has worked. You think back and, okay, the, the first reaction is, I feel guilty or I feel shameful, I feel remorseful. Knock it off. <laughs> Look at those scars and think, yeah, that's something that's always going to be a part of me. But it's going to be a lasting reminder that the consequence of that sin was taken away. The consequence of what that person did to me was taken away. And that gives you the power to not forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. That gives you the power to appreciate it and to love the, the remedy that
that God has given to you. And one, one final little um, thing here as, as we conclude. Have you noticed, this is kind of your thing to do for the week or for the month or for your life. Um, have you noticed that whenever you're seeking resolution with a person, you leave out the pronouns? What I mean is this, resolution is simply, I, you know, there's something bad between us, you want to resolve it. You want to, okay, we're good, we're good. Okay, that's, that's the resolution. When you seek revolution or when, re, resolution with someone, there's a lot of times I find myself doing this, maybe you do too, you leave out the, the personal pronouns. You don't say the word I. You don't say the word you. If you did something wrong, you say, I'm sorry. You don't say, I'm sorry. You say, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just get the M on there. Or if you're, if you're saying that you forgive him, you say, eh, it's okay. It's okay. Maybe remember, it, it's not okay. What happens? Well, when sin happens, it's not okay. And, and closing dream, closing thought, what if we could live our lives so full of this remedy that God has provided that it would change the way that we talk to one another? That when, when husband and wife, or when child and, and whatever, when, when two people seek resolution, they are so comfortable knowing that they are forgiven by God, that they can walk up to you, or you, you can walk up to them, and you can say, not just, I'm sorry. You can say, I am sorry. I regret what I did. I did it on purpose. It was no accident. What I did was unacceptable. What I did was not a mistake. What I did was a sin. Because I am a sinner. And when somebody tells that to you, you look at him in the face and you say, I told you so. No, you don't say that. <laughs> no. You look at them, and, and maybe it's with these words, maybe with its other words. You, you say to them, you know what? God does not condemn you. Neither do I. The, the thing that we're also worried about is when we say that S word, when we say sin, that when we get it out there, it's just going to be condemned, condemned, condemned. Now here's the final thought that, th that I'm going to leave you with here today. John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the key that unlocks a part of your life that might be locked right now. He is the remedy. He is the answer to the problem. And as you let that sink into your life, you're going to find yourself putting the pronouns back into resolution. I am sorry. We are okay because of the one who was lifted up for us. And what we're going to see next week, uh, Ben's going to continue this series, and he's going to look at the way God freed Israel from, from their slavery in Egypt. And when God sets us free, there's going to be some amazing things that happen in our lives as we put all these things into practice. Uh, let's close off today with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the story and in the accounts of, of Moses and the bronze serpent, you give a very, very clear picture of what Jesus would have to do for us. So often we, we come to you in prayer and we, we, we ask, we plead, please take away our sins, take away our guilt, but we recognize that our sin and our guilt doesn't just vanish, but it, you, you have to place it on your son instead of us. 
He was lifted up to be our remedy and to be our cure. And as we look up to him and as we, as we follow him, especially during this time of year, to his sufferings and his death, remind us that he did it out of love for each of us. Fill us with such a joy from this that we find it overflowing into our lives, that we are full of acknowledging our shortcomings, but at the same time being confident in what you have made us to be. That in the empty tomb, we find our holiness with you. We pray this in Jesus' name as we also join in the words he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.